Welcome to the bookcase. I am Kate Gibson, and excuse the musical interlude. Welcome, bienvenue. Welcome. See, I came up with a new way. I came up with a new way. You did a new way for welcome. Yes. And a musical interlude. My apologies to Joel Gray. My my big apologies to Joel Gray. <laughs> and I'm Charlie Gibson. This is our two generation, two gender look at books. Books that Kate and I appreciate and like and want to suggest to you that you might think about reading them. I want to set the scene a little bit for today's writer. Doug Bauer is his name. Uh, I had a chance to meet him at a reading when he was reading some of his essays, which I thought were excellent. And so I bought the book, like you do, and um, I had a chance to meet him. And we talked a little bit and, and he called me up or actually sent me an email not long ago saying, I've written a novel and I'd like you to consider it for your podcast. So I did. I read it. I was sort of intrigued by the fact that he had written a novel because I didn't know he was a novelist as well as an essayist. And I liked it. And let me just give you a little bit of the background of it. The first, it's, 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 it starts sort of typically boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl, boy is an aspiring baseball pitcher. Girl's father says, give up baseball or give up my daughter, and he chooses the daughter. Okay, that's pretty typical. But then it all changes, and father and they, by that time he has a son, a protagonist and son, wind up on a barnstorming baseball trip with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. And I won't tell you how that... How, like, you, like you do. How, <laughs> like you do, right? And I won't tell you how it comes about. Doug will. I, I just found it really interesting it it is evocative of the midwest as the barnstorming tour goes through it it is evocative of father and son bonding over baseball it is evocative of ruth and garrig who were such two different characters that i was always as a baseball nut fascinated by their relationship the name of the book is the beckoning world so i called doug back i had katie read it she liked it i called doug back and said okay we'll do it I want to set the scene for the way that I read it a little bit, because this book is about a father and son in baseball, and it's got a romantic innocence to it that I think is really beautiful. At one point, there's literally the father and son, and they're playing catch outside the red barn, and the basset hound is lying at their feet, and you know the only thing that's moving on the basset hound is the eyes going back and forth as he follows the ball. It, it paints beautiful pictures. I have a somewhat re different relationship with this novel, because I saw baseball through the eyes of my father. My father is a baseball. That's me. Yeah, that's that's, that's you. Right. And I'm going to talk about you in the third person like you're not here. So just sit back and pretend like you're okay. not here. Um, my dad is a romantic when it comes to baseball. If there is a baseball game on, even if it's the the Long Island fuselages versus the Florida <laughs> phalanges, he will watch it. Um, he has, there is a romantic innocence, I think, to baseball. I don't know what it is. I, something about the geometric arrangement of the guys on the field, the singing of Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning. I don't know. But there is a romantic innocence to baseball. And my father's relationship has always been very serious. When the Nats won the World Series, my father wouldn't talk to us for a couple of days. He needed a couple of days to process it. He felt so good. So for me, this novel was an emotional experience because I saw some of my father's relationship with baseball through the main character's eyes. And so for me, when it was done, I was crying like a baby because there were so many things that rang true for me between the father and the son and the way that they communicated through the sport of baseball. You know, I heard George Will 
he was he was a guest actually that I was interviewing when I was filling in for Ted Koppel once on Nightline, and George described baseball as an ecologically pure sport. <laughs> that when you walk into the stadium, there is this beautiful field with the grass cut in patterns, and it takes place not just around a ball, but it takes place over the whole panoply of the field. And then, of course, you can't help but think of a field of dreams. And this book is set uh, largely in Sioux City, Iowa. And, and as I read it, I kept thinking of those baseball players walking out through the cornfield and, and all of that. It is very evocative of a field of dreams. So anyway, again, the author is Doug Bauer. The book is The Beckoning World. And here's our conversation with Doug. Doug Bauer, when we uh, look at movies these days, so many of them start with a little uh, thing on the screen that says based on true events or based on a, an email, or based on a, a, an historic <laughs> fact, or whatever. To what extent is this book based on fact? Almost entirely, largely, anyway. The first thing that got me to write this book was the piece in the New York Times that talked about a barnstorming tour that Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig took shortly after the 1927 World Series where they went across the country and played exhibition games with all these small towns and drew these great crowds. And, and one of the stops they made was in Sioux City, Iowa. And there was an incident on the field where a little kid was running on the field and fell and almost got trampled by the crowd, sort of English soccer style trampled. And um, Lou Gehrig saved him. And all of that happened. And so I just thought I wanted to write about that. I was intrigued by the idea of writing fictionally about fictional Ruth and Gehrig characters. And the rest unfolded from that. But that was certainly the historical center of my imagination. Kate and I, as we've been talking about the book, I have kept asking her the question, and we talked a little bit about it uh, leading up to our conversation here, whether this is a baseball book or whether it's basically a book about a father and a son, and a family, and parents, and all of that sort of nostalgia that we feel about family with baseball as a background. What is it in your mind? The latter, as you described it, I think fits what I see it being almost perfectly. I think it's a love story, and I think it's two love stories. A romantic love story between a man and a woman, and then an evolving love between a father and a son. And baseball is certainly the essential context for the events of the novel as the husband-father in the character has aspirations to be a major league baseball pitcher. And there's a lot of baseball in it, no question about that. But I don't see it as a baseball book. I see it, I, su I suppose, um, sort of offering my a chance for my indulgence because I love baseball a whole lot to write about it. But for me, it's a love story. Well, I was, I was going to ask you about that. What role did baseball play in your life that you felt compelled to tell the story of Gehrig and Ruth? Well, baseball played an enormous role in my life and still does as a fan. I was lucky to grow up among a lot of cousins who I saw almost weekly on Sunday for dinner at my mother's parents' house. 
many of them were phenomenal athletes. And I was kind of young among the cousins. And they were very generous in sort of tolerating me as I learned how to play the game. I mean, we played whatever sport was in season, but particularly we played baseball. Uh, so, you know, I just don't remember a time when baseball wasn't kind of at the center of my life growing up. I played it. Uh, I was decent. I played it through high school and have a lot of great memories of it as a player. So it's just fundamental to my psyche, I guess, you know. The whole book has a Midwest feel. Earl and, and Henry and the baseball itself takes place in the Midwest. You obviously have a feel for the Midwest. You describe it particularly around Iowa. You describe it sort of rhapsodically and with great affection and with great nostalgia for the Midwest, which really becomes sort of a character in the book itself. How, how did that all come about? Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I was raised in a very small town in Iowa, about 20 miles east of Des Moines. And the Midwest and Iowa in particular is just in my DNA. And I particularly have always had a case to make for the landscape of the Midwest, which I think is vastly underrated, particularly if you, if for people who haven't seen it, they're quick to underrate it. I find it for the most part just majestic. This expanse of it, the fertility of it, the idea that it's working. It's not a lazy, fallow landscape. It's, it's growing things. And so, you know, I just, uh, having grown up there and lived there until my early 20s, uh, when I began to move farther east. I, I tell people that the dirt in Iowa is a different color. It has a, a it, it just looks rich and fertile. Yeah. It's a really interesting state. Yeah. A, a very quick anecdote. I was on an airplane coming into Des Moines once, and I heard a conversation in the seat ahead of me, and two men were looking out as the plane was landing at, you know, the quilt of the landscape. And one of them said, what is that, uh, what is that black stuff? Um, and does it come with parking um you know in some ways this book to me is oh gosh it's almost to me a midlife fantasy book for me because in some ways the father gets to go back and travel the road he didn't choose and he gets to finish that road as well as the life Mm. that he chose i'm interested do you have something that you would go back and do the same way? That's an interesting question. I mean, I certainly found my way to the life I wish to lead. I, I wrote stories as a kid. I always did. I, I never thought of having a life as a writer. I just thought that writing and reading would be very, very important to my life, whatever I did. So I guess I don't have that regret. Or, or I don't have that sense of a missed opportunity because uh, very gradually, very, very sort of uh, incrementally, the life I find myself in now is the life that I just kind of evolved quite eagerly into. I will do a spoiler on the book with your indulgence. Sure. Father and a son wind up barnstorming with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. That part is fictional, arises, as you mentioned earlier, out of a the scene that actually happened. And there is a wonderful sense of a father and sons growing together, the son admiring the father as a pitcher, all of this with the baseball background. 
But it seems to me that that's where you are, that you're finding things in life that change you, as this so markedly does with this father and son. No, I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think the for me, the central tension of the book is when Earl, the pitcher, the protagonist, when he finds himself with this decision to have a life with the woman he's, as he calls it, relentlessly in love with, <laughs> and she him, uh, but with some complexity, needless to say, to choose that life or to choose the other life of aspiration, which he you know hasn't yet quite satisfied. It's not determined whether he's going to, if he if he chose the life of a professional athlete, how far he'd go, and that's you know it. Whether it's true or not, there's the saying that Yogi Berra allegedly said: "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." <laughs> yep. <laughs> it all plays out on this barnstorming trip with Ruth and Garrick. Ruth was he was big in all of his manifestations, yeah. personally, on the baseball field, etc. And then you have Garrick, who was a very buttoned-down, intellectual person devoted to family, which I think it's fair to say Babe was not. <laughs> that tension between the two of them is fascinating. How do you picture it? Uh, because I think we all have our own, we baseball nuts who are fascinated yeah. with those two guys, <laughs> yeah. have our own image, I guess, or fantasy of what that must have been like. I didn't know that much about the relationship between the two of them until I started to research the novel. I knew, you know, I knew the legend of Ruth. There, there was an age difference um, that was significant. Uh, Ruth was at the top of his game when Gehrig arrived. Gehrig very quickly attained uh, arguably a, an equal get, uh, stature, but their personalities were so profoundly opposite that I always see uh, Gehrig as the younger, deferential, somewhat intimidated, always trying to figure out not how he could be in good graces with Ruth, because I think Ruth made that clear, that he was fond of Gary and admired him as a baseball player, certainly. But that um, Gary kind of, at least my fictional understanding of the two of them in their relationship, Gary was looking for a way, I say it in the novel, to have a more modest version of Ruth for himself, uh, more forward, more aggressive, more confident, you know, more selfish. And at a point in the novel, he realizes there is no such thing as a more modest version of Babe Ruth. That, you know, that's, <laughs> that was a foolish notion on my part to think that I could acquire such a, uh, such a characteristic for myself. You are the first writer, you won't be the last, but you're the first writer that we're talking to that publishes through an independent publisher. And I wanted to talk about that. Talk to me about why that's important, what that offers you. And then also, too, if there's any exceptional way that our readers should get a hold of the book, because let me tell you, listeners, readers, you do need to get a hold of this book. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Um, break that down for me a little bit. Well, the easy answer to, is the, to the last part of your question is... Um, you know, you can just go online. Well, it'll be in bookstores as of November. Great. But um, you can go online to University of Iowa Press and click it. Uh, Barnes & Noble, all the main uh, bookstore websites, you can order it that way. Independent presses really have as much exposure as as the big guys? They don't have as much shelf exposure. There's no question about that. But I think in this age of virtual delivery, 
the access to independent books, independent publishers is absolutely as, as easy as to larger scale commercial publishers. There is a, a wonderful ending to the book. And I, again, I don't think I give anything away, but the young man, the son of Earl's son, Henry, goes back and sees Ruth uh, as Ruth is dying. I don't know if Ruth actually ever went to Sioux City, Iowa. In, no, that's that's all factual. At the at the, he, in the end, end of his life? Yep, yep. Went back, and the young man goes to see Ruth and goes without his father, which is a, a, an important point. But he wants Ruth to remember his dad. Exactly. There is something about it that's a, a longing in that young man, now an older man, seeing Ruth very compromised and decomposing in effect. It's so nice the way you you write about it. You you say I I hadn't known how much I was wanting to remember who my father had been, to have him back, the man in full, not just his skills with the baseball, that least of all, but wanting his strength and his wit and his warmth returned to me even for a short while, and it had seemed I needed someone who had known him only as that man, and Ruth didn't. Ruth didn't remember his dad. <laughs> There's a sorry i just when i read it i cried and when i typed it out on the page so that i could remember it i cried and then you read it and i cry so thanks a lot for that doug <laughs> it's but it is it is you know you want you want somebody to give you a piece of your parent yeah and and ruth can't do it because ruth is ruth yeah it's a wonderful scene that you imagined well thanks so much um, yeah, Bruce was working for the Ford Motor Company, sort of promoting a, a junior baseball league and going around the country as he was dying. Uh, but he was in Sioux City that very day that I set uh, that scene. And, you know, the irony of it is, of course, which Henry didn't know when he knew Ruth as a nine-year-old boy, Henry, that is, uh, he didn't know that Ruth couldn't remember a name for, for five seconds, you know, let alone a larger portrait of someone. He had a notorious lack of memory. And so the ironic sort of figure to seek out, to try to summon the memory of the father that he wanted to have returned to him. I think mourning and grief are not just about life and death. They're about realizing that you don't remember the last time you picked up your kid or that you're never going to come down the stairs for Christmas morning in your stocking feet anymore. Yeah, It's those moments that are frozen that you realize. I think in some ways, if you knew those moments were past, you would drive yourself crazy. So it's nice not to know when they pass, but when they pass and you look back. My favorite passage was, and, and I think about this a lot in the way my father speaks, I've never been able to decide if he spoke those words with nostalgia or regret or satisfaction. And why wouldn't they all be in it? Aren't they the very stuff of our complicated feelings towards so much of our lives when we see them in review? I don't know. That also, to me, delved into the subtleties of grief. Look at me. I'm, you've made me a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to say I'm glad, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it is a very, very nice story about a father and a son and a family mm -hmm. and how they come to terms with so much of their lives and how their lives are changed with this wonderful 
baseball nostalgia, the baseball setting, baseball trip, baseball barnstorming through the Midwest. It's all so nicely done and drawn together. Oh, thanks. Doug Bauer, it's a pleasure. The book is The Beckoning World, the University of Iowa Press. And uh, Kate and I loved it. Yeah, we did. Well, thanks so much to both of you. It was really a pleasure. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, rapid fire, Doug Bauer, most influential book in your life? Great Expectations, Charles Dickens. Why? Well, I adore Dickens uh, in general. And I think Great Expectations just in terms, you know, it came late in Dickens' life. And uh, it just seemed to me the ultimate refinement of his, of his genius. Uh, the, the tightness of it, uh, the, just the perfection of, of the way the themes worked out. The language is almost contemporary. We think of Dickens as a very florid Victorian writer, and he often was earlier and even in later life in Bleak House. But uh, Great Expectations, you isolate passages of that book and read them to somebody, and they would swear they were written yesterday. A book that we might not know about that you'd like to give to people. A wonderful novel. I just happened to reread it, so it's in my brain, by Karen Joy Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R. And the novel is called Sister Noon. Do you spend more time reading or writing? Oh, reading. Favorite things to read? Well, I do read mostly fiction, although for the last few years at least, I've been reading a, a lot of poetry. I found myself a little just kind of not being able to land on a lot of contemporary fiction that uh, others really admire, and I just can't quite find my way into it. And I have a couple of good friends who I teach with, who are poets, and I've kind of just begun to ask them who they like. And uh, so I read a lot of poetry these days. Your favorite poet? Mine? A poet named Vijay, V-I-J-A-Y, and the last name is Sashadri, S-E-S-H-A-D-R-I. If I were not a writer, I would be... And I had the choice? Mm -hmm. I'd be a baseball player. <laughs> no question. Books still on your bucket list. Oh, God. So many, it's embarrassing. 
a lot of Tolstoy. Um, I haven't read War and Peace. I've read Anna Karenina. Uh, let me think. Uh, a lot of the Russians. American books. It's not really on my bucket list, I guess, unless your bucket list includes something you just feel you have to read. Oh, yes. Before it's too late. Is, oh, the first novel of Fitzgerald's. Beautiful and Damned. That's what it's called. Ah. The Beautiful and the Damned, yes. Yep. My guiltiest reading pleasure is... I don't have a guilty reading pleasure. Uh, I don't feel guilty no matter what I read. I really don't. Uh, that sounds like a corny thing to say, but I started in life as a journalist, a magazine journalist, and I was uh, a, a complete, not you won't be surprised to hear this, but I was a complete uh, Sports Illustrated addict and, uh, and also Sport Magazine. I would be reading them on the subway going to work. People kind of look at me because I was too old to be reading sport magazine. <laughs> and I didn't feel the least bit guilty. I just almost was, felt like standing up on the bus and speechifying, defending myself. Well, then I'm sending you a copy of Fifty Shades of Grey for Christmas. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's morphed into something totally different. In its early stages, I think some of the best journalist writing that was going was in Sports Illustrated. They had a wonderful cadre of writers. Absolutely. Who really, and this is very strange, for somebody who wrote for television, which is a very strange occupation, because I used to say to my friends at the New York Times, you know, you have paragraphs to make a point. I have a clause. And yet, yeah, yeah. the Sports Illustrated writers did that so well in very compact copy. Yeah. Uh, they were able to convey the emotion of a sporting event, I thought, uh, marvelously well. Frank DeFord, all of them, uh, in those early days at Sports Illustrated, where it was really a treat to read those guys. Yeah, and I didn't even think of it in those terms as I was reading. But uh, he, Sports Illustrated also would let their writers go sometimes, too. I mean, let them just take off. I think of Dan Jenkins and some of his stuff, which is just right. hilarious. And he eventually became, you know, he wrote Semi Tough. And so there was that whole roster. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 Robert Kramer, we we're talking about Robert Kramer, was the managing editor for a good while, while there. Mm -hmm. Right. And finally, in five words, just five words, <laughs> what would you like the rest of your life to be? <laughs> a continuation of present life. Our conversation with Doug Bauer, I really enjoyed this book. I, I loved being taken on this journey. And when we talked earlier about romantic innocence, I loved the way that Doug sort of drew Lou Gehrig out, I think, as an innocent. And Babe Ruth was more of a hard-nosed romantic. Romantic? You saw Ruth as a romantic? Yeah. Really? I think he very much believes in the romance of baseball, in America, in women, in... I don't know. He's the embodiment of... How did Doug describe him to you? Remind me how Doug described him to you. The most hyperbolic character in all respects that you could ever encounter. Yes. So he's a romantic in the sense that he doesn't just eat life. He gobbles it. Oh. He's, he just, he needs, like, there will never be enough life if, if, if I take the characterization based on this book. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. If, if that's, if that's how you define romantic. I, Ruth was, as I think we said in the in the discussion, he was huge in all of his appetites, his appetite for life, his appetite for baseball, women, everything else. Richard Kramer wrote a great, great biography of Ruth and picturing him diminished and not that big rotund figure that he was at the end of his life always seems to me 
just seems to me, I just can't picture it. Um, I can't picture Ruth in that in that embodiment. It's a lovely book. Uh, one thing we touched on also, it's put out by an independent press, the Iowa University Press. And uh, so if people are interested in reading it, then I, I think it's worth a read. The Beckoning World, you, you may have to search around a bit for it because uh, it comes from the from an independent press. And as, as Doug says, they don't get as much shelf space in most bookstores. But uh, anyway, I'm fascinated by the relationship between Ruth and Garrick. And I think he does a wonderful job in portraying what I think of is their relationship. Ruth, this big, over-the-top, hyperbolic human being, and Garrick, the intellectual, the quiet guy. Obviously, mutual admiration between the two of them, but two very different people. Anyway, the book is The Beckoning World. The author is Doug Bauer. Our bookstore uh, today is Fact and Fiction, and I, I love this. It's in Missoula, Montana, and uh, we had a chance to talk to Mara Penich. Uh, I hope I pronounce her name, Mara Panich, right? She is one of the owners of Fact and Fiction in Missoula. And we talked to her about her store and what books she's recommending. Mara Panich, good to talk to you. Missoula, Montana, 75,000 people. Is that enough to support a bookstore? It's enough to support several, actually. We really? are a writer in a reading town. We have a couple independent bookstores and some non-independents. The greater Missoula area is about 100,000 people, and we are the big city in the area. We're about three hours from any significantly sized city and a mountain pass. We get people in from all around. You are going in 2026 you will have your 40th anniversary. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, you moved locations in 1988. And and I I have a picture that I painted in my head of this because it says on your website that that volunteers moved your store. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was in 1998. Um, I was was not here. Sorry about that. before my time, but our founder uh, originally founded the store on Main Street and um, found this great location on Higgins, which is wonderful, and moved us over and had all store volunteers, customers, people from the community literally lined up with book carts and wagons (laughs) and moved books from for about two and a half blocks through Missoula. <laughs> That's my kind of circus train. One of the things I like the most about your website is, I mean, normally you walk into a bookstore and there's a shelf of staff selections, but on your website, everybody is allowed to post their selections. You have a lot, Mara. There's a, <laughs> that's a, quite a list, Mara. Um, but when people come into your store, what of that long list are you handing to them? Right now, I'm handing a lot of people two books. Um, one is a book called Thrust by uh, Lydia Yuknovich. And I love that book because it's cli-fi, which is climate science fiction to a certain extent, though not super sci-fi, but there is a time travel aspect. It really explores working in America through uh, the building of the Statue of Liberty. It's got a three-pronged timeline and it's also exceptionally sexy, which being able to combine those three things into one book and do it <laughs> as beautifully as Lydia does, 
has just floored me. Um, and then the other one that I just finished is a book by Jules Omen, who is a graduate of the program here. It's called Body Grammar. And it is a coming of age story of a young woman in uh, Oregon. And um, I just love it. It reads a lot. I've been saying it's like Sally Rooney, only American and gayer. <laughs> We have a very storied MFA program at the University of Montana. It's a huge program that produces a lot of great writers. And does the bookstore have something of a relationship with the program? We do. Um, we sell all the books at their events and work with them with fundraisers. Of course, we work across our community like other independent bookstores to support all the schools and all the programs around that are getting people to read and write and encouraging literacy. I ask all the bookstore owners this question because I think it often introduces some magical stories, but nobody gets into book selling because they want to make a million dollars. So what was it? What was the store? What was the book? for you that was like, this is what I want to do when I, when I grow up? You know, um, I'm one of those where bookselling started out as a part-time job. I was a lit and creative writing major in undergrad, and I came out here for graduate school. And I don't think there's one moment or one book, but working in an independent bookstore and connecting with that community and the joy it brought of just feeling a part of something after years of part-time working, then full-time working, it just, it became my life. I don't want to do anything else. We talked to a bookseller recently who said, when you put a book in somebody's hand and they come back and tell you they loved it, she said, that's the wealth that I receive. Definitely. Yeah. So talk to me about, I mean, in some ways, because you have access to this terrific MFA program, you guys have probably, I mean, discovered some folks, as it were. Like, you probably get the first crack at a lot of talented folks. Is that something that still excites you as a bookseller? And, and how do you pick out those diamonds in the rough? Definitely. Um, and outside of the MFA program also, we are almost all writers who work here. So we're readers and writers. And... Just hearing the readings of the young grad students and the younger folks, the emerging writers. I say young, I shouldn't say that because a lot of these folks are not fresh out of college or high school or whatnot. Hearing their stories, hearing what they have to say and finding them finding their voices. I don't know how we pick it out. It's uh, magic. Uh, <laughs> uh, psychic. I don't know. <laughs> I like also, by the way, that you have children's books on your list. So what to you makes a great children's book that belongs on the Mara recommends list? Um, for me, I adore a humorous kids book that will entertain the parents as much as it entertains the kids. There are several that are on my top recommends that they make me laugh and there's little details. The kids may not get until they're older. But the parents definitely see what the writer's doing. Jory John's Penguin Problems is beautiful and it's wonderful for those kids that are grumpy and complain all the time about things. And Dragons Love Tacos is uh, spectacular. We threw a giant taco party when the second one came out. Uh, Bruce, any of the Bruce books. 
I think I like grumpy characters for some reason. You know, it's interesting because I read, I remember The Phantom Toolbooth was one of my all-time favorite books growing up. And I read it to my daughter when she was five because I couldn't wait to read it to her. And now she's turning nine and I'm reading it to her again because now she gets all the jokes because it's all about language. And there's something magical about reading it then and her loving the story and reading it now and her understanding the language. So I know exactly what you mean. It's, it's awesome. Coming back to Montana as something of an idiosyncratic state, and I don't mean that in any way negatively, regional writers are so important. Are there writers in your mind that really capture the experience of your area? There are several. One, and this relates to, we're just coming off of, we just had the inaugural James Welsh Native Literary Festival here in town for the weekend. And I think to capture res life and um, what it's like for that, definitely Winter in the Blood by James Welch and Perma Red by Deborah Magpie Erling are two must-reads to understand that section of our population. Jim Harrison has written some wonderful things about Montana. Richard Hugo for poetry. Um, There's just so many that I could go to, and now I'm trying to bring up somebody who's more recent, and he actually used to work for the store. Uh, There's a guy named Chris Latre, who is very much so an emerging author. Uh, He's about to have a book published by Milkweed next year, and his writing, he was published by a small press here in Montana, and his writing in his book, One Sentence Journal, really captures the the calm yet buried ideologies of Montana. It is such a beautiful state and people who can capture that, I suspect are lyrical in their writing. A lot of times. um, And and lyrical is, is a great way to describe it. There's also a simplicity to it. Um, Lyrical, but not floral, I guess is the best way to put it because we're, we're rough around the edges as they say. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Mara Panich, and I hope folks will stop by the bookstore. It's on Higgins Avenue in Missoula, Montana, Fact and Fiction. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you. Mara Panich of the Fact and Fiction Bookstore in Missoula, Montana, on North Higgins Avenue in Missoula. I don't know the geography of the town, but I suspect it's not so big that you'd have a problem finding it. Next week, Kate. So next week, we have the great biographer and nonfiction writer, John Meacham, whose new book, And There Was Light, is a biography of Lincoln. Why another biography of Lincoln, Dad? Well, there have been many, 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 many written. But I think in light of current events and where this country is now, looking at Lincoln through the prism of what he faced and what we're facing today, similarities, differences, etc., makes for a very interesting book. John Meacham, next week. Um, And as always, we want you to listen to the people who make this podcast possible. And after that, a little bit, a little comment to take us off the air from Doug Bauer. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Shertavian. Read always. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. 
first, though. It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.